I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And we are here to discuss Daphne du Maurier's 1938 novel, Rebecca. We're here to discuss the first seven chapters of it. And we are joined by a crowd of witnesses. Vast <laughs> crowd of beautiful witnesses. That's right. I like when you said a vast crowd of beautiful witnesses, Matthew Huff in particular waves. He's As if so to say, beautiful. yes, I am a beautiful witness. So yeah, we are here with uh, with some of our Patreon supporters, and and they're, it's our first ever attempt at a, a live recording of of close reads that was online. We've done them at conferences and things like that, which is very different than this having people actually in the room. But we are of course here to start a new book, so we got to discuss our histories with this book, if there is any. Heidi, have you read this book before? I have never read this book before. Never. I've heard some things about it, you know, heard through the grapevine, the literary grapevine. It's a vast network. <laughs> so, um, but no, I've never read book, it. Book Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Twitter. Have you, yeah, try to start Twitter. that one. Uh, is, uh, have you seen the movies, either of them? Nope. So neither the Hitchcock or that new Netflix one? No, okay. not a single one. Tim, what about you? What's your, what's your history with Rebecca? I have no history of, with this book. I have not seen the movies. I now, I'm not, not going to jump the gun, but having read as far as I have read, I can't believe that I have not, that I know nothing about this book. I find it, it's off to a rip bang of a start, David. Don't you agree? <laughs> That is David, a don't you question. agree? That it's, is a exactly, it's exactly what it is. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, I thought you were going to say a rollicking, though. And you said, what did you say? Rip bang? I said rip bang. I, just, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I just felt like rollicking is your, is your word for, for books that have a rip bang beginning. Um, this, is a, this is a gothic novel. As I said, it's from 1938. And it was written by English author Daphne uh, du Maurier. And... This is a this was of course made into you know a number of adaptations. I believe there's even been stage adaptations, and there's been a number of other novels as well as TV shows that have, you know, borrowed or outright stolen from this from this book. And of course, there if you want to go do a little Wikipedia deep dive or uh, biography deep dive, this book itself has its uh, accusations of being having been the plot been stolen from other books. Uh, that came out around the same time as this one. So you can, there's, there's an interesting history uh, behind this book and behind her work in general. Have either of you read anything else by her? No. Nope. Jamaica Inn or anything? So this is our first time. First read uh, of this author. Yeah. Okay. I'm about to uh, read an ad read. And while I okay. do that, what I want to hear is from the audience how many of you have, how many of you who are joining us? I mean, you, if you're in your car listening or doing the dishes or something, you can respond too. We just, won't, won't know about it. It won't but, go into the official tabulation. Right, exactly. Uh, but those of you who are here with us, how many of you have either read this book before, like not not for the show, but previously in your other life, or have at least read some of De Maurier? So we want to. I want to hear that. Um, why don't we do a, a hand raise? We can, why don't we use a hand raise to signal that you have read the book before? Like a, a digital hand raise or a literal hand raise? A digital hand raise a, okay. using right. what's been given to us on... Now we're going to get all these notifications of people raising their hand, Tim. Okay, well, while they're doing that, we need to tell you about Karen Swallow-Pryor's 
new series of, of books. Of course, we're going to do the very newest book on our next book here on the podcast. And that, of course, is Jane Eyre. But it comes from B&H Publishing. And if you head over to bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics, you can find out more about it. But the idea is that they are bringing the best of the classics from, of course, an award-winning English professor and author who is providing insightful introductions and reading tips that help you read through the lens of the gospel. The series includes, as I said, Jane Eyre, Frankenstein. And of course, last year we talked with Karen about Frankenstein and she was working on that edition when she was recording with us. Uh, and then of course, Heart of Darkness and Sense and Sensibility. And they've got more coming next year as well. You can pick up these beautifully designed classics today and reread these literary masterpieces with a faithful guide who has spent much time studying them. Again, you can head over to bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics. So that's B the letter B, as in, you know, like boy or Bob or Battlestar Galactica, and H, as in hat or Homer or hot dog. bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics. You know, when you're doing a live recording and all of a sudden you have to think of letters that begin with H, it's very strange the things that come to mind. That's what I just learned about myself. You didn't okay, want so to go with beta. <laughs> you wanted to go beats, bears, and Battlestar, Battlestar Galactica. Galactica. That's right. Um, okay, so Tim, what's the official tabulation? I, it, it jumped up to eight, but the problem was some people used the hand up, emo the thumb up emoji, and other people used the hand up emoji. So right now we've got our data set is a little, I think it's skewed. I'm going to say it's, and Heidi just toasted us like, I it's, toasted the wine, it's the Stephanie. wine speaking. Oh, yeah. I thought you were saying like, the reason for the um, confusion is it's the wine speaking. I think we're at seven, seven of 48. Have, well, have read, have read this book. there's some in the chat book. box too. Many, there's some oh, really? in the chat box. So lots of people okay. have read it. Okay. Okay. We're going to get an education from our listeners. How, yeah, I was going to say, how many of you love this book? Okay, we've got a couple, couple hands up. One of the things I want to ask, I'm, I'm going to turn to Heidi in a second with a question, but I want to ask the audience to po post in the comments, what is it about this book that, for, for those of you that just love this book, what is it about that, about it that most captures your imagination, I suppose? What is it that most makes you love it? And don't write an essay, just give me like, you know, put in like a couple words um, just so we can, because they'll go fast. Ashley says the mood. Speaking of mood, that's a good transition because Heidi, I said at the beginning, that this is a Gothic novel. This is part of a sort of grand Gothic literary tradition and... You were telling me off, you know, before we recorded that you were surprised to find out when it was written. So I was wondering if you could address why you were surprised by that. And then also talk a little bit about what makes a book Gothic. Like what are some of the characteristics of that tradition? Uh, it just from a, you know, sort of literary uh, tradition mm -hmm. perspective. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I was, I was surprised it was published in the 20th century, 1938, and I didn't know that. I knew it was a gothic romance uh, slash suspense thriller, psychological thriller novel. Um, and so I thought it was going to have been written in the 19th century, you know, kind of like around the time of the Brontes or so on and so forth, because that was kind of the high point of the Gothic novel. Uh, and the Gothic novel usually has kind of an, a reputation for melodrama, which I do see indeed in this particular novel. Um, mm -hmm. Just a bit. Yeah, a bit. 
And uh, a gothic novel is known for kind of these like creepy English countryside labyrinthine houses and some kind of like a mysterious tormented hero and uh, uh, larger than life experiences going on, you know, like crazy wives in the attic or someone chasing you with a knife down the hallway or, you know, your bed curtains are on fire because somebody is tormented in their soul and coming for you. It's like that kind of, that kind of real heavy genre kind of feel, not quite horror, some elements of horror, more suspense, um, kind of big emotions and a lot of angst and a lot of, you know, Mm. kind of larger than life, you know, English country house kind of experiences. Yes. Vivid descriptions that's coming through in the chat box. Um, Usually nature, you know, like if it's rainy outside, then the people in the house are sad, you know, a lot of like connection between the natural world and the emotions of the people, that kind of thing. So a lot, you know, it's a very, it's a genre. um, And some people love that genre and some people find it just a bit too much. So Tim, you love this yeah. book. From what I've read, I've, I couldn't so, stop reading. I'm like, I'm already on like chapter 12 or something. Cheater. So what is that? Is the gothicness what makes you love it? And are you normally a gothic lit? When I think gothic lit, fan. I think Edgar Allan Poe and I'm Edgar Allan Poe, you know, he's like the best mm. bad writer in American literature, you know, um, and the Brontes. Mm-hmm. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Say that again. He's the best bad writer in American literature. He's just a bad writer, but I mean, his stuff is really readable, but I don't think anybody comes away and like, oh, the glowing prose of Edgar Allan Poe. Unlike this book, <laughs> the prose of this book is stunning. That's, yeah. that's the question I was yeah, going to ask it's you. amazing. Okay, keep, um, keep talking. Keep going. With what I find really compelling about this book is I am, I don't know, a third, if not two fifths the way through, I am creeped out, completely creeped out. I woke up last night at four in the morning. I've had, I don't know why I've been waking up at like 4.40 every morning. And I started listening to it and I got freaked out. And I still don't know who the, is there an antagonist in the story? Like Maxim is, you know, a creep and he's an overlord. And the housekeeper is kind of awful, but neither of them have done anything. There's, there's, there's no violence. There's no like sinister activity that we're aware of yet. It's just creepy. And I have a feeling that I'm going to be halfway through the book and I'm still not going to know if like, if there's a bad guy or what the nature of the bad guy is. So to have me that much on edge and to not be able to kind of name who the antagonist is, I think is an accomplishment. I don't know if you can see it's what all, I wrote in my book. It's all washed out. Who is the bad I guy? Wrote, what page is that you wrote the bad on? guy? At the, the final page of where we were okay. when we finished reading. So when we finished, got to the end, that was the question that I wrote. <clears throat> so I suppose we might as well discuss that in a little bit. Let's talk about the prose though, because you're talking about how the prose is, uh, what was the word you used? You said stunning. Stunning. I think it's stunning. Go on. Would you, do you, yeah, do you want to, would you like well, to well, explain? No, I mean, I could like, read. I'm not taking issue with that. I'm just saying, this is your chance to unpack, you know. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that later. Cause there, there might be um, passages that might be enjoyable to read, but there's no, I didn't highlight a particular passage that 
is my proof text for the glowing aspect of the prose. Is there something else you want to talk about now then? No, I don't want, I don't want, no, no, no. I do want to say this. I'm kind of peeking over in the chat box and oh, do I that. don't want people who know the end of the book to tell me who the bad guy is, you know, like, well, don't, peek, I keep, then. that's your fault. Not theirs. Wait, hold on. No, we're supposed to be, you've asked me earlier to kind of like monitor a little bit. So I'm trying to monitor. So if you, well, you know, heard Anne Marie's feelings, at least her high school feelings. I heard her high school feelings. She liked Poe. Oh, oh. Hey, Marie, we can talk about that off the air. <laughs> convince me. <laughs> you can, you can convince me. Another, another series. Heidi, do you... So I actually do want to talk about the prose because the thing about the book, beginning of the book is nothing is happening at the beginning of the book, in my opinion. So that's... And I don't mean that as an, in a negative way, but what makes the book stand out at the beginning is the prose. Because as you, Heidi, you said something about how this is off the air. You said something about how once the, who's she working for? Um, Max oh, yeah. and DeWinter. Oh, oh, Mrs. Van Hooper. That's who you're yeah, talking yeah. about. Once yep. you said, mm-hmm. you know, we're on chapter three or something or two, she mm-hmm. shows up and, and it, for you, it began to, the, the nature of the book yeah. began to come into focus. So then that would imply if it got interesting, then that would imply mm-hmm. that it wasn't interesting before that. So, <laughs> or at least it was less interesting. So then there's this, the prose at the beginning, I mean, this book is one of the, this book is famous for a few things. And one of them is the, the beginning, the opening line. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, last night Very I dreamt, famous. I went Very to Mandalay again. Mm-hmm. So she kind of puts her, her mark out there through her prose. And there's a sort of poetry to her prose, right? It's lots of it is actually written in what is very close to verse form, if not, you know, direct iambic pentameter. So w- what would you say is what are the characteristics that make Daphne de Maurier's prose most compelling um, because that's really what the beginning of the book is. It's an, exp- she's just remember, you know, think it's almost, like she's just thinking about the nature of memory. <laughs> yeah. It um, begins as a memory novel. It is a memory novel. This is a middle-aged woman looking back on her life and reflecting and telling the story of how she got to where she is. We know she's with a man that she loves and loves her. We don't know yet if it's Maxim. Um, and we, we know that they have somehow escaped something heavy and that they, they no longer live at Manderley. Um, so there's a lot given to us here, but it is, uh, you know, the first two chapters I, I are designed to create an atmosphere of mystery, which is, again, one of the major characteristics of a Gothic novel is an atmosphere of mystery and terror. So um, to Tim's point, she certainly succeeds in that in the first two chapters, she raises the question, how did she get here? Um, and what's going on? And you can tell there's there's a sense of heaviness and trauma and loss um, as if they have been through some great ordeal and now find themselves in a period of peace. And that becomes then, I think, kind of the uh, our entrance into the mystery of the novel, uh, which by the time we get through chapter seven is their marriage, right? And the nature of their marriage and who is Rebecca, like who, what, who is this woman whose memory haunts this house like a ghost? It's interesting that um, Manderley is like the first real character that we meet, even before we meet the person who's telling the story. Mm. We get all of this True. information about what Manderley looks like or what it did look like. Now we're seeing what it looks like overgrown. And so there's this funny kind of effect that, Mandalay has been in some way 
decimated or kind of willingly it's it's in a state of decay at present and we don't really know i mean again i'm like a third of the way through and i don't know who's responsible for the decay of manderley like who is pushing them out who is pushing these this couple out such that we're going to end up you know 30 years later and manderley is going to be just falling apart and not not apparently not lived in of course that's she you knows that she dreamed she went to mandalay yeah you're right i, I so took that as a little bit li- literal and maybe it's not maybe i shouldn't take it that way so why, why did you take it literal though because it was so Vic, just because it's it yeah, it it so vivid but you're right i need to remember it's a dream it might just be Maybe Mandalay by the end of the book is in a great, you know, it's, it's, things are just wonderful there. They're going to yeah, hold the book state fair at Man- in the Mandalay gardens. <laughs> yeah. It definitely is, you know, suggesting that in the end, right. everything's going to be rosy. Right. So when we're talking about the pros, what are we talking about? Like Tim, I, I really do want to talk about this now because for me, cause it's like the entry into the novel and it's the thing that I had the biggest problem with because huh. It's both good. Okay, I'm going to say something that's going to be very offensive to like to most people who are here, and then I'll just have to bear the slings and arrows. It is both really good and really bad. That's how I would put it. Go the on. Okay, so so why is it really bad? Because I assent to really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's find the common ground first. How th- we, I would l- we, we're on the common ground. Okay, okay. No, because we, ground. we okay. might actually think the opposite. Oh, okay. First of all, you can't agree on everything on a podcast, right? So, you know, but it's boring. what about the prose is most compelling for you? Is it, is it, cause is it, is it just like the way she strings words together? Is it her turn of phrase? Is it the way she creates images? Is it the sort of verse like uh, tone? I think it's the last two things. It's the way that she creates images and that it's the verse like tone. I think those are two strengths from what I've read thus far. What do you think are the strengths? Why do you think it's good? So she has an ability to put these sentences together that anybody who likes to write would have loved to be able to string those clauses together, if that makes sense. You know how, you know how you're reading something and you get to the end of a paragraph and you kind of, you're just kind of amazed that someone had the capacity to do that and they make it look easy. They, yeah. It feels like they got to that easy. I think uh, Austin has this. I mean, there's many writers that I think have that capacity to where you get to the end of a, a sentence or a paragraph and you just kind of want to put the book down because you would have no ability to ever do that. I think in some ways that can, is one of the things that is also her from, from me bothers me. I, I, I don't actually, I, what I'm trying to say here is there's things about it that I don't like. I don't actually, I'm not going to say that because I don't like it because there's things about it that bother me. I actually do like it. There's things about it that bother me. That doesn't mean that I'm actually right. It just means that that's my response to it. Um, my initial and do you response. know why it bothers you or there, or there particular, like, are there some, a couple of sentences you just, you read and you're like, whatever, Daphne. There were definitely a few of those. Really? Uh, where the, 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 the melodrama of it is challenging for you me. Find that, <laughs> let me, let me ask you this, David. Do you find that melodrama is in the content of the story or is it embedded within the prose itself? Like, is it part of the That's form? That's a good question. No, no I don't is mind. Is it merely the content? I don't mind that. I actually don't mind the melodrama of the story. 
I mean, it does read like a soap sometimes, but that's not actually what bothers me. It's not the content. It's not what's happening to them. It's, it's, it's the expression that is melodramatic. Now, I admit in a way that that melodrama in the style of the writing is sort of objective correlative-ish for the melodrama of what's going on in her, in her inner life, in her mind. But what I want to know is when this narrator became like Christopher Marlowe, how does she have the capacity as a first person narrator to write like this? Oh, 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 oh. Isn't it because it's later? That's a great question because if she's writing it as, what is she? Like maybe 19 when, like, we don't even really know. It's not really mm-hmm. named how old she is, but let's say that she's, yeah, she's, she's under 21. Oh, she's 21. Great. Um, at that point, she probably does not have the kind of rhetorical capacity that could that could write in the prose that we're reading so it could only be written by an older woman which is what's happening right well i actually think i agree with david on this particularly with some we will talk about things we like about it with particularly with some of the gothic genre kind of writing like for example this sentence here on page on the very first page the woods, always a menace, even in the past, had triumphed in the end. They crowded, dark and uncontrolled, to the borders of the drive. The beaches, with white naked limbs, leant close to one another, their branches intermingled in a strange embrace, making a vault above my head like the archway of a church. Okay, so on the one hand, that's like very beautiful writing. On the other hand, could it be more of a gothic cliche written 100 years later, right? So this oh. is... Like this is, I, I don't know if that's David's point, but I, I think that there are elements in there that, it, that are so gothic that they border on cliche. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and that if is a bit distracting, like I, I feel like there could have been like a, like a lighter touch with some of those things. It's beautiful writing, but it's a mm-hmm. little bit like, okay, so this is a gothic novel, punch you in the face with it. <laughs> like it's it's like a cathedral you guys like dark dark trees like a cathedral get it like so that yeah, i right. think and there's a church I, there's a church you, over us as we're entering the house is that what yeah. you mean i thought it was a bit yeah, heavy-handed so. on the gothic trope yeah i sure and and i actually that she is successful at that i'm perfectly willing to say is mm-hmm. that is a me problem and it could be I'm somebody's very book favorite bad thing because about of it. that Right, it could be exactly. some very, very favorite thing about the book. So if you love the gothic genre, which I actually do really like the gothic genre. So, and I, and we all like genre novels and this is a, this is a genre I like, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit like if it were me reading a Western and it ends with like an actual person riding off into the sunset with a girl on the back of a white horse, I might be like, really? So that <laughs> maybe, maybe that's, is that kind of what Eddie, you're getting at, that- David? Mm-hmm. Is that a problem with this book or is that a problem of Daphne du Maurier's success harming her after the fact? Oh, I don't know. You know that's I mean? a, like, good, that's like, a good question. Cause I, I feel like we're splitting hairs. Honestly, I, I think David's right, but I also think that's one of the things that makes the book great. So if you like the Gothic genre, you're going to be like, that's awesome. How like 150, you know, between hundred and 150 years later, she's writing this. Like she's got the 20th century clarity with the perfect Gothic tropes. That's actually a really cool mixture. And I like that about the book, but I could see if you, it might be a little bit eye rolling. 
Maybe yeah, I'm mean, just unfamiliar. Sorry, David. I'm just unfamiliar because I'm not a great fan of Gothic novels. It like breathes really fresh to me. Yeah. Whereas well, and the writing's <laughs> new. Like I told David, I'm sorry, I interrupted. I told David mm. that I, um, I thought that the clarity of the writing was refreshing because I didn't know it was a 20th century novel. So I, I was like sitting down with like my big girl reader pants on getting ready for like the high Victorian Gothic, you know, kind of uh. like labyrinth of language. And so I was very impressed by like the kind of fresh, the freshness of it. So that's something I actually ended up so far really liking about, about the novel. Okay, do you guys find yourself, you know, in the, like maybe by chapter three when Maxim is introduced and we know enough about our protagonist's situation that we want her out of it. But we also know that Maxim is kind of like too old for her. I mean, maybe not in whatever, in 1937, maybe it was not as socially frowned upon, but it's just like, it's, it's clearly not a good match. You know, their age is just, too, there's too much of a gap there. And yet, did you find yourself kind of like wanting them to kind of get together totally. in some weird yes. way? Yeah, right. Okay. Well, that, and that's where her lack of options, Demoria does a great job really giving us the sense of how she sort of feels pinned in, hemmed in, claustrophobic, whatever it is. You know, every time she's with Mrs. Van Hooper. Hooper. Hopper? I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it eventually. Like the last episode. Um, every time she's around her and she's having to do something for her, she feels this this sense of tension. This, it, I don't want to call it hopelessness, but a sense that her future is is very limited. And so those limitations on her future make him more appealing I to us. I think he's dreamy. I would marry oh, him. Oh, do you really? Second. Do you yes. really? If I was 21 years old... And okay, yeah. we, need, okay, okay. we need more thoughts from the, the other yeah. ladies on, 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 on Winter's dreaminess. <laughs> Heidi, is that your, it, it, I get your 21 year old self would say that, but would, would your um, 35 year old self, I, which is you your current age, yes. <laughs> yep. would, that, would your 35 year old self counsel your 21 year old self and be like, go for it, girl? Go for it. Well, I don't know. Or would your thirty-five-year-old self be like, oh, "Yeah, that's a good point." You don't know the end of the book, but even I'm like totally rooting for him. I want just him to based on I the want... scenario that you have. Right. What would you? What's it the... could go either way at this point, right? Because I've only read the first seven yeah. chapters. I've only read, so it could go that he's like a psychological tormentor, right? Yeah, right. Or right. it could be that he is a victim and is trying to heal. And that is that's the great mystery. Like he's the mystery. Um, yeah. and the mystery behind the mystery is the title, Rebecca, right? And yeah. so um she's she's very straightforward, our unnamed narrator, our nameless narrator, which is highly significant by the way. And um but she's she's as David points out, she doesn't have options, but here comes this mysterious, rich stranger who's just like sweeping her off her feet and he's got this tormented past. That's like moth to a flame to a 21-year-old girl. So that is, he is he's attractive, he is sophisticated, um, he has so many worldly things to offer. Plus there's just that sense of like, I could comfort this tormented man. Like that is, that's like catnip to a young woman. <laughs> There's also, I, one of the things that I like so much about the beginning of the book is that our protagonist and Maxim connect 
about Mrs. Hooper's kind of foibles. She, Mrs. Hooper is a great character in that she's just repugnant really quickly. And our, our yep. antagonist, no, excuse me, our protagonist um, is already at 19, even though she is more naive in some ways and innocent in some ways. She's also like more cagey and savvy than mm. Mrs. Hooper is socially. So she, our protagonist, and Maxim kind of connect over the fact they both, they both kind of get it. Like Mrs. Van Hooper, just, mm, gosh, it's, uh, we both, we, hey, Maxim, you and I get it. And I think that's part of the reason that I found myself really wanting them to get together. Hmm. It's interesting that Mrs. Van Hooper is this character who, as you said, she's repugnant right away. Like two sentences into meeting her, we don't like yeah. her. And we're yeah. pretty clear on where our narrator uh, is with her as well. But then at the end of chapter six, is it? when he is at the end of chapter six, when they decide to get married, she is the one that tells her that warns her, you know, the character who we don't, we aren't supposed to like is the one who says the thing that is most in keeping with what the book is foreshadowing. Cause there's all these mm. hints. She's, she's dropping, you know, the narrator is saying, I wasn't in the moment. I wasn't even sure about this. Right. How many times does it say it seemed weird, but I just overlooked it. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Cause you know, that's a, not a very melodramatic way to say it, but she, you know, she says it over and over again that she wasn't sure. She's decided, but she decides to go along with it anyway. And then when Mrs. Van Hooper finds out, she says, "He's just, he's just lonely. It's got nothing to do with you. It could have been anybody. He doesn't love you. Be careful what you ask for." And so then it puts us as readers. We have a feeling We're there's something. Wondering. There's something that's about to happen, right? Because the right. foreshadowing is there. But then the character who we don't like is the one who either is giving the most wise warning of all. Or is uh, well, I don't know what the other option Just is. <laughs> angry and vindictive, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Tim. I, I wonder. This is a little bit of a turn away from what you were saying, but I wonder if Mrs. Van, uh, how do I say this? If our protagonist could hear Mrs. Van Hooper's words, like he doesn't really love you, he's just lonely, and I wonder if she might think. Mm, okay, that's fine. I'm willing to be in a loveless marriage. It's not what I want, but given my circumstances, I'm about to move up in the world, fine by me. Heidi, what do you think is more compelling to our narrator? The tall, dark, and brooding mystery man who has a secret, who she can save, or the circ moving up in life? improving her circumstances part of things. She's What's not a more gold compelling digger. to her? That is the thing that he sees in her. He seems to see this naivete, this uh, this sincerity that he is drawn to. Um, and again, we don't know yet his motives. At least some of you, you all do. have read it many times. I haven't. I don't yet know his motives. It could be he sees and is drawn to that because he needs to be healed. It could be that he's drawn to that because he wants a young woman to break, essentially. And, um, and that, you know, Gothic novels go either way. Uh, and so she's, I think, playing with that particular trope and kind of leading us with some of these clues to figure out which way that the story is going to go. Um, I, I think if what's the most compelling thing for our young narrator right now is her own emotions. She is obsessed with her own changing emotions. Like you can see how much emphasis there is. And this is, is what on makes it difficult aged. for the reader. 
Exactly. We don't know yet if she's unreliable, if we can, if we can um, really, uh, if we can put our weight as readers on her perceptions of this time, that is not yet mm-hmm. clear. Um, but she is constantly going down this, you know, her, her mood and her emotions and her responses change. They're mercurial, like every 21 year old uh, human, especially a young Speak woman, right? That, um, yeah, you were probably super mature at 21. So I, I wish I had known you at that time and could learn because I probably still wasn't. Though we're about the same age, though. I'm 35. Um, (laughs) uh, Anyway, she does seem so. Was your conscience was your conscience feeling heavy there that you had to just just let everyone know? (laughs) I I was. I am not 35. Um, Anyway, she's constantly kind of going down these trails of her own, describing like in the morning I felt this way, in the afternoon I felt this way. Like she's she has this like interior kind of obsession with her own responses to life, which is very typical of a woman her age and is very, very, very tied to her well, perceptions anybody her and her age, responses yeah, to, to Maxim, right? Um, so if that question is what's more compelling, her feelings for him or, or the desire for money, I would put her desire for money lowest, although I'm sure it's there because she wants to be secure and she doesn't know mm-hmm. where to go and she doesn't want to be a companion to a vulgar woman her entire life and then become a middle-aged and older woman without any options. And so that, and she has this already existing love for the house because she had that picture postcard as a little child and it was a fantasy place for her. But I think that the most compelling thing for her at this point is her own feelings. The fantasy thing is really interesting because she's constantly talking about how she thought things were going to be. So for example, when she arrives at the house, she talks about it kind of talks about how she was disappointed at what she first saw. And then eventually it opens up into this big lawn or whatever. And then you get the scene where after he says, let's get married, they're getting up from the table and she's thinking, well, maybe the waiter is going to, he's going to tell the waiter and everybody's going to know. So she does have these dreams of being some, somebody, something more than what she is. So do you think that her, at the risk of bringing up something that's very complicated, um, and and maybe not worth addressing is her interest in him how much of it is it based on her own ambitions and then I, the ambition. I don't think she knows herself well enough to be ambitious which is why he's drawn to her i think he sees this naivete and this sincerity and uh, compared to his own jadedness and obvious inner torment that He's he's drawn to that, um, but so, I don't I don't think she knows her her herself well enough to be that way. But I think what he sees is that if she continues the way she is, he essentially says this to her: If you continue in this life, you will lose your innocence and you'll become like her. You'll become like Mrs. It's Hopper, by the way. You'll become like Mrs. Van Hopper uh, and and her ilk, right? And he doesn't want that to happen to her. And you know, nothing is. I mean, I don't, I, maybe this is too, it seems to be that that like desire to protect and preserve is, can be a motivator for either true love, or it could be a motivator for like a sadistic kind of breaking. Like if I'm not going to let her do it, I want to do it. So that mm-hmm. is like, I think that's the mystery of the book at this point for us. So in the chat box, Jennifer said a minute ago that she, she points out that our narrator tells him her whole life story on their very first private conversation. And then Kristen said right after that, he really sees her when no one else does. He asks her about her parents and she trusts him with that story. It doesn't belong to her anymore. 
she she clearly op- opens up to him, right? She she reveals herself. The question of whether he sees her is really intriguing to me. At the risk of you know arguing with Kristen when she can't defend herself, I would love to know if you too, like Tim, do you think that are that that he that that's true that he does see her, or is it yes. just that he's looking at her for the first for the first time? Someone's looking at her. I think that he sees her, but I read it as um, this is an older, more sophisticated man who uh, he could either be like growing in his affection for her, or he could be seeing like a young cult to be trained. And the way to kind of like train a young cult is to learn her story. And I read it as the latter. Because I, he doesn't give anything back, you know, like there's no, like he doesn't even tell her why they went, where they went on their first drive. Right. Right. He's, he's, he's completely safe. Um, and he's kind of like got himself on a pedestal and he's like completely content to remain on that pedestal. But I just take him to be sophisticated enough to know, um, if I am going to woo this woman, then I'm going to ask her questions and I'm going to see her. But I think the intentions behind him seeing her, I'm dubious about those intentions. When I first, when I first read it. Jennifer says, creates a really good description of this in the chat box. She says, is he a protector or predator? And I think that that is a great kind of distillation of where we're at with Maxim right now in the novel. We're all, we all know there's something off with him. Is it because he's a bad guy or because he's a wounded guy? Wounded. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Is he defensive because he doesn't, if he reveals himself, his plot gets revealed (laughs) or is it, does he not reveal himself because he's been, he's damaged and doesn't Mm -hmm. want to. I'm going to go on the record as saying I'm rooting for him. I'm team Max. You want him to be okay. I and by the way, good. we know that they're together at the end of the story. She According never mentions his name. It oh, she just says man. him. She just says him. Okay, That's let's talk about right. that. Let's talk about this idea that there is no. Because I, I am not it. right now. I am not looking at any of the like faces that are on the top of the browser because. If you, if she's with another man <laughs> at the end of the book, they're all everyone's like, they like you know Heidi sees it, and I'm not looking because I want to have the mystery preserved. So speaking of mystery, then let's talk about the lack of proper names here, because as mm-hmm. you said, Heidi, even our narrator never gets named. He, she doesn't even record an instance of him calling her by her name. But he comments on how beautiful and unusual her name is. So I, the, our, narr- our author is drawing attention to the fact that she's nameless by having Well, no, she's man choosing named- to make him nameless, to make herself nameless. Right. Well, I, I meant Daphne du Maurier, right? I meant she, oh, the, the craft oh, okay. of the novel is intended for us to notice that we don't know her name, you know, um, yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. first person. And so sometimes you don't catch that, you know, if sometimes you don't always know what the name of a first person narrator is and you don't really notice that you don't know. But when he says to her, you have such a beautiful and unusual name. Right. And we're like, well, what is it? Never. We don't know. Yeah. It's probably, her name was probably Tim. 
Yeah. It is what so a beautiful and, and yeah. unusual. For the way it just rolls would be unusual. Timothea. Okay, can I tell you a really, really <laughs> funny story about Lucy really quick? This will take 10 seconds. Okay, it'll take 15 seconds. So there's this story <laughs> that I can't even remember the name of the book, but it has somebody's like two names it's a it's a children's book with two names i think it's like nancy and plum or something like that and please in the chat box tell me what the real title of the book is this is a kid's book i assume yeah so lucy was having a conversation with her friend in the car and i was driving and they're in the back nancy and plum i was right so so this lucy's friend says why like whose name is plum like that's not a real name maybe it's short for something and my daughter lucy age 11 says plumanda so, so that's whenever we don't know anyone's name in our Did house she do now, it with we're a straight always like, it's probably Plamanda. So. <laughs> was she being, was she like deliberately that. being silly or oh, was she, she was just being, like, she's hilarious, well like done. really quick witted, well but that was so great. So Plamanda, maybe her. her name is Plamanda. That is dad, unusual. Huh? Maybe not beautiful, but definitely unusual. Yeah, definitely takes after her dad. Yeah, I know. Quick witted. So, um... <laughs> Yeah, I am a slow. I'm like, yeah, box of rocks over here. But that girl, yeah. Plamanda, the number of takes, right on the, the tip of her tongue. I, you're doing really good for because normally we have to do so many takes on this podcast. Yeah, that's right. Um, hey, cover really for getting, Heidi I'm again. Really yeah, exactly. Logan, edit exactly. That Thank you. So, so let's. What is the effect of this then? I mean, this namelessness. We can look at it as what is the effect of it from a narrative perspective in terms of how it drives the narrative forward. Also, what is the effect of you know, is, is this an example of how she creates mood, for example? What is the effect on us as readers? And Nicole says she's definitely going to pretend her name is Plamanda for the rest of the book. And then Heidi said, ha, 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 ha. It was clever. It was a clever yeah. response. It was quick-witted. Tim, will you please take the field take of this the lead on this question? I've been talking a lot about Plamanda <laughs> and who knows what else. So. It's, it opens the door for our protagonist, Plamanda, to... <laughs> be a cipher you know like Mm -hmm. what for like what maxim wants her to be she is now as a kind of non-named entity set up to be that um but what's interesting is i don't see other people i need to be careful about that i think everyone wants her to step into the role of the lady of the house with the exception of Mrs. Uh, is it Danvers? Did Mrs. I, Danvers. Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. Danvers, like, kind of wants her to be the woman of the house, but also just wants Rebecca back, and is resentful that there's a new lady in the house. Okay, so all that is off topic. It, in some ways, we'll I come back think to her. that she is a cipher for Maxim. Um, I don't think that Maxim. I'm down on Maxim. I'm da- I'm not. I'm not. You're not goal. Team Maxim. I'm not Team Maxim. I don't this think that we're going to get to the end of the book and and we're going to be like, you know what, Maxim, that poor soul, he just had to work out some kinks and now he's okay. I don't think that's going to happen. I may be wrong. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. And I think she's a little bit of a cipher to him. She, he just wants her to be the kind of lady in waiting all of the problems that she brings to him are not really problems you know he doesn't really take her seriously in any way what do you mean that she is a cipher to him he she's a blank canvas that he can paint the portrait of Uh, 
of the woman that he wants on that blank canvas. It's, and then of course in the, you brought up Mrs. Danvers because in the chapter where he, where she arrives at Mandalay, there's hanging over her entrance is the degree to which she is going to take over. Yeah. You know, the degree which she, she is going to be a dominant force or personality or have opinions or run the show, whatever phrase you want to use in this house where clearly, you know, there's that line where Mrs. Danvers, she, she says, she's about to say something like, you know, Oh no, no, no. Um, it's after the conversation with Mrs. Danvers, Maxim says something like, he's about to say something like, well, when Rebecca was here, she ran the whole show. Basically, he's going to say something like that. And it's like, so you're fine. That's kind of what his, his point is, but he doesn't finish it. And he just kind of moves on. And so there's this, this question hovering over the, these, these, I guess, chapter seven about how much she's going to take over and be a dominant force. And Mrs. Danvers is kind of trying to figure her out. Uh, she's trying to kind of uh, figure out whether she, whether this is going to be a person that she's going to be able to dominate herself. Mm. So you've got on one hand, Maxim, who, who maybe she's a blank canvas for him in, in, in a certain set of ways, but then also Mrs. Danvers, she might be a blank canvas for Mrs. Danvers as well. Although she might also, it might be more that she feels like she's going to be able to control her um, because Mrs. Danvers definitely gives off that vibe that she is, uh, she likes to do things her way. Heidi, you, you, sorry. I, I just want to say one more thing before Heidi weighs in. It seems like everybody in the book thus far wants to educate our protagonist Everybody wants to tell her like the things that she needs to learn. And granted, she's kind of like moved into this adult world. You know, she's surrounded by all these adults. There's nobody her age in the book, like nobody by 20 years. Right. Uh, There will be one a little bit later, but. So far, everyone thus far is there to kind of like educate her on the way that she ought to be. And there's no. And so in that way, I think she's a cipher. She's a nameless cipher. She's a tabula rasa. And everyone is trying to kind of like make an imprint on this blank slate about who she ought to be. But there's no soulmate anywhere in sight, like nowhere in sight. There's only advisors. And that, to, that creates a real, in me, it make, creates a real effect of like sympathy. This poor girl, like how is she, like what a miserable situation to be in. It, it's it's it calls to mind like a Dickensian orphan or something like that. Yeah, or, I mean, oh I, man. Or I guess you know other Gothic novels where you know you've got a young woman who has no power and yeah is thrust into a strange and dark situation. Heidi, you were going to say something a minute ago, I think. Yeah, sorry, Heidi. Or oh, else you no, were just writing. Am... You you were scribbling something to remind um, yourself to say something. I think that her namelessness is also an objective correlative to her own kind of sense, lack of a sense of identity at this point in the novel. Um, She doesn't, she doesn't know who she is. She is entirely dependent on other people to tell her and to lead her. Uh, And she goes from Mrs. Van Hopper's tyranny into this home when she's expected to be a mistress, but she is in some sense dominated uh, by 
by this man, right? And she's, who's older than her, old enough to be her father. Um, it could turn into a true lover. It could become just a domination of her selfhood, in which case her namelessness makes even more sense. Um, so I think that that is a huge part of it because if I, I, I think that there is a, an underlying feminist statement going on within this novel. And I think a healthy feminism that's saying like, how does a young woman find herself in a society that is so eager to dominate her and tell her what to do? How would Mm. she find an identity in that? Um, And, and is there something, is there something to notice and pay attention to about that part of the novel? I think, yes. What does it tell us about her that years later she's writing this novel and still and she's happy Doesn't and at peace, right? And, give herself and clearly a in name. a loving, committed relationship, hopefully with Maxim. But um, so she is there. Yeah, there, there is. We know from the very beginning that she's been through an ordeal that is now over and that she has found a modicum of peace and identity. We don't know yet whether that's a healthy identity, but she certainly seems to say she's happy in it at the beginning. That namelessness also, I think, contributes to the sort of moodiness of it. There's a, mm-hmm. it's almost suggestive. I mean, we've got a, we've got a dead wife in this house. We've got the nameless girl. We've got this sort of ghostly figure, right? Who, who in Mrs. Danvers, and we've got a mysterious, we've got a mysterious, you know, dark, brooding, mysterious lord of the house or whatever and so that all contributes to the to this moody to this moodiness that people were talking about that they liked and so other than i would like to talk about that that moodiness a little bit what are some other ways that you guys see de maurier capturing well creating that sense of mood uh, and and where do you think she's most successful at that besides just giving us these sort of ghostly figures all throughout the novel and i think mrs danvers is a pretty key example of that moodiness that mood that she creates without mrs danvers uh, even through seven chapters this is a very different book she she like hovers over she's like a specter uh in in our narrators mrs de winter's uh experience so what are some other ways that that you guys see that being captured here tim would you like to go first it, it depends on what you mean by mood I... an atmosphere of mystery you... and terror the defining characteristic of a gothic novel. But you don't mean like the kind of um, shifting emotions of the, of the protagonist, correct? Or is that do not mean what she will, what might happen if she puts on a mood ring? No. Um, yeah, I'm even <laughs> more lost than I was contribute before. To, I think that that does contribute to the atmosphere though. So I think that's one way, but I don't think it's the only way. You mean the emo- her emotion, yes. her shifting emotions? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, sense I, of vulnerability that we have as we're reading about that. It creates yeah. a disequilibrium in the reader to yeah. to hear about her like kind of lack of knowing her own mind, her like being swayed by her moods. Anyway, keep going. And and mm, those moods, yeah. I think those moods are swayed more than anything else by others' gaze upon her. When someone looks at her disapprovingly, whether it's Mrs. Danvers or Maxim or Maxim's sister, 
it's it affects her and of course it's totally natural given like the age that she's at but i find myself part of my discomfort in the book is that i want her to step forward and say hey maxim shut up i'm going to do it this way and of course she just can't she's just not there she's not and I really want to do that with Mrs. Danvers. Like, Mrs. Danvers, we're going to have key lime pie tonight. Go make it. But she is not established enough in her own maturity to be able to advocate for key lime pie. That would, that would make for a great scene, though. That Man, could have, she could have done a lot of drama with that scene. So much pie. Yes. Yeah. And it would be key lime pie. Yeah. Okay, so, great. Right? Lemon meringue. So. Are we really going to do this? No. Um, no. Really going to have the pie debate now? We have a live audience. We can't spend 30 minutes on a pie debate. Um, Jennifer mentioned the descriptions of the estate and the plants. Mm-hmm. The rhododendrons were monsters, and that jumped, that jumped out to her, she says. Yeah. On page 65, in, if you're using this edition, the... The Goldberry Books edition? One. Yeah, the Goldberry Books edition. It's the approved close reads. Chapter edition. 7. <clears throat> that passage is probably worth reading because... It definitely captures the melodrama, uh, but also the effectiveness of the melodrama in in moments. But Tim, you should know that Nicole does agree with you, Keyline. You have one. Well played, on Nicole. Side. Well played. Um, I'll just start at the top of sixty-five and read here for a minute. I'm going to read the last paragraph of the the last sentence of the paragraph that continues from page sixty-four. I envied Maxim careless and at ease and the little smile on his lips which meant he was happy to be coming home it seemed remote to me and far too distant the time when i should smile and be at ease and i wish it could come quickly that i could that that i could be old even with gray hair and slow of step having lived here many years anything but the timid foolish creature i felt myself to be the gates had shut had shut to with a crash behind us the dusty high road was out of sight, and I became aware that this was not the drive I had imagined would be Manderley's. This was not a broad and spacious thing of gravel flanked with neat turf at either side, kept smooth with rake and brush. This drive twisted and turned as a serpent, scarce wider in places than a path, and above our heads was a great colonnade of trees whose branches nodded and intermingled with one another, making an archway for us like the roof of a church. And had he read that bit before previously? Even the midday sun would not penetrate the interlacing of those green leaves. They were too thickly entwined, one with another, and only little flickering patches of warm light would come in intermittent waves to dapple the drive with gold. It was very silent, very still. On the high road, there had been a gay west wind blowing in my face, making the grass and the hedges dance in unison. But here, there was no wind. Even the engine of the car had taken a new note, throbbing low, quieter than before. As the drive descended to the valley, so the trees came in upon us, great beeches with lovely smooth white stems lifting their myriad branches to one another and other trees trees i could not name coming close so close that i could touch them with my hands on we went over a little bridge that spanned a narrow stream and still this drive that was no drive twisted and turned like an enchanted ribbon through the dark and silent woods penetrating even deeper to the very heart surely of the forest itself and still there was no clearing no space to hold a house the length of it began to nag at my nerves it must be this turn, I thought, or round that further bend. But as I leant, leant forward in my seat, I was forever disappointed. There was no house, no field, no broad and friendly garden, nothing but the silence and deep woods. The lodge gates were a memory, and the high road something belonging to another time, another world. 
Should we keep going? Should we read about the rhododendrons? How do you want yeah, to read the next there? paragraph? How do you pick it up there? Uh, can you remind me where we're at? Because I just turned my page. Top to of sixty six begins suddenly. I oh, saw. Yeah. Suddenly, I saw a clearing in the dark drive ahead, and a patch of sky. And in a moment, the dark trees had thinned. The nameless shrubs had disappeared, and on either side of us was a wall of color, blood red, reaching far above our heads. We were amongst the rhododendrons. There was something bewildering, even shocking, about the suddenness of their discovery. The woods had not prepared me for them. They startled me with their crimson faces, massed one upon the other in incredible profusion, showing no leaf, no twig, nothing but the slaughterous red, luscious and fantastic, unlike any rhododendron plant I had seen before. I love that then she glances at him and he's just grinning like a fool. Like him? He said, um, okay, so, you know, th- go ahead, Tim, go, go. I, I thought that this section was so good. Like the, the length of the drive mm-hmm. was so good because we're like, man, we are isolated here. We're really having to go through the jungle to get to this little oasis of civilization. That being said, I think David, if you, the complaint that you issued at the top of the show that like sometimes it kind of seems a little bit melodramatic. Like I think the last sentence here. Yeah. I was going to, this was my example. Slaughter, yeah. Yeah. Read it. Say it, David. So I, I, like I want to go back to the middle of the paragraph because my favorite sentence in all the first seven chapters is we were amongst the rhododendrons. Like the the snappiness of that sentence, the the drama of that sentence is far is far far greater than than the sentence the the long sentence that goes. They startled me with their crimson faces, masked one upon the another, in incredible profusion, showing no leaf, no twig, nothing but the slaughterous red, luscious and fantastic. Anything unlike any rhododendron plant I had ever seen before. Maybe it's just the word slaughterous, (laughs) but. I like the word slaughterous. Well, I like the word slaughterous too, but I also like key lime pie, but I'm not going to eat it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) David, Um, but you recognize that as a character flaw. I probably, I I probably would eat it all the time. I I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's not really what we're, you know, she does capture the mood here and using a word like Mm -hmm. slaughterous does tell us what the book is, right? And, and I don't begrudge the book being what it is or her accomplishing what she's trying to do. The fact that I think it's a little melodramatic is kind of beside the point ultimately, but it is an entryway into a conversation. So that, that we could debate about the, the, the nature of that word the rest of the podcast if we want to. But Heidi, for you, what is it that she's so skilled at doing here that's creating... You know, it's creating the are, mood. It is, she does here create this mood of this like entryway flanked by monstrous unexpected plants that are that that don't that don't belong in she says even in the next paragraph um for to me a rhododendron was a homely domestic thing strictly conventional right and so to have these like monstrous flowers is a mood setting it's a foreshadowing it tells us that they're going to a place that isn't quite right it's distorted in some way um and the color red of course and, you know, many of the adjectives here evoke a, a sense of impending doom having to do with violence and death. And um, so 
I think that she, this is another way she is building that Gothic mood. And mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a Gothic novel without those overwritten, kind of overwrought, very vividly descriptive, um, using the scenery uh, and the characters and what they're wearing and nature and the weather and all of that. A Gothic novel uses all of that to create atmosphere. And it all goes together. The slaughterous flowers are part of the story because they tell us that there's going to be some kind of blood and death. And that is intrinsic to a Gothic genre novel. We have to look for that. You especially, David. I have to look, I have to look for it. I don't really need to look for it because it's clear she's going to beat me over the head with it. Um, oh. oh, okay. <laughs> sorry, I'm just, I'm just being mean. So one thing that is really interesting is that the way she is looking for order. You know, she, what she wants is the, the rake and the, uh, the rake the and the brush. Domestic, strictly you know, conventional thing. A broad and spacious driveway full of gravel flanked with neat turf at either side, kept smooth with rake and brush. She's looking for a sense of order, which presumably she has never had. And as much as anything, that sense of order is, is what it seems like her soul is most longing for. She doesn't talk a lot about how in love she is with him, but she does talk mm-hmm. about how, you know the sense of belonging somewhere in the sense of home and and what she seems she seems to be looking for is is uh is stability and and that's what she's expecting and when she doesn't get that and she gets the woods instead she's disappointed by that as she should be because i mean in american literature the woods are the earliest archetype being lost mm-hmm. in the forest is the earliest archetype of american literature and then you know you look back to james fenimore cooper and hawthorne almost all of hawthorne's most most scary stories, you know, his most gothic stories are about people getting lost in the woods and running into, you know, Young people Brown. yeah, witchcraft and so forth. Uh, James Fenimore Cooper, it's about finding, you know, Leifanger's distaste for the last of the Mohicans, notwithstanding. It's about finding, you know, creating order out of disorder, finding, uh, you know, being able to, to tame the wilderness because otherwise it strangles you. And this house seems to be surrounded by that strangling force. So even as she does come into the, you know, as she does come into the clearing, there's a sense that she, that all around the house is more claustrophobia. She thought she was getting away from that by going with him, but instead she's going through this claustroph- this claustrophobic driveway. And although she comes into the clearing, the house is still surrounded on one side by the sea and on the other side by the rhododendron, the bloody rhododendron forest. Uh, and I think this is the beginning of what I, I mean, to, I would read this as the beginning of disillusionment for her. She's like realizing, you know, and then she gets Danvers and that, that just really, you know, pushes her over the top as far as that. And so then at the end of seven, you know, it might as well be that, that paragraph at the in the two towers where Gandalf says, "Yeah, we're going to go find a war now." You know, you might it might as well. That's basically what this signaling is. The rest of this book is going to be, it's going to be there's going to be a conflict going on now. And so, yes. do you think then, Tim, that what we have been set up for is an actual antagonist? Going back to your question, like an embodied antagonist. Yeah, I mean, do, you said there's, you said that one of the things that's telling is we're not clear about who the bad guy is. And I mentioned that I'd written that down at the end of seven. Uh, so as we get to the end here, unmet expectations of the newlywed phase times 1000. <laughs> That's what Jennifer says. Um, are we set up for an antagonist? See, I don't, my hunch is that Mrs. Danvers is not the antagonist. She is 
maybe an antagonist, but I, I don't, I still don't know who the antagonist is because it's so, it's so atmospheric that it makes me wonder if we're kind of dealing with forces that are bigger than a housemaid. I mean, because Mrs. Danvers is limited in her capacity, unless we find out she's got some sort of like supernatural, like she's got some hocus pocus going on. I'm just not that afraid of Mrs. Danvers. She's going to be an irritant, but according to her place, what is she going to do to our protagonist? Especially if, uh, unless there is some relationship between Mrs. Danvers and Maxim that we don't know about, like some kind of like entrenched nastiness that we don't know about. If that's the case, then Maxim might choose her over our unnamed protagonist. But otherwise, I think that our protagonist has to be bigger than Mrs. Danvers. That's my, uh, that's, that's what I anticipate. Heidi, what do you think? Heidi is the, who's the antagonist going to be? Rebecca. It's going to be Rebecca. Okay. The, the movement of the novel is that the marriage is the action of the novel so far. That could change, the previous right? marriage or the current marriage? No, that this marriage, that our unnamed mar- narrator and her marriage yeah. to Maxim de Winter, the de Winters, is the, is the action of the novel. And uh, the definition of a protagonist is someone who moves that action forward, and the definition of an antagonist is someone who holds it back. So I think, based on the title and the rumors that we've heard, he was crazy about his wife, his sense of withholding affection from our narrator, that just our own kind of more mature reflections on the nature of the marriage, this older, sophisticated man choosing a naive young woman and bringing her kind of into the fold, um, and in, in which she's literally sitting on Rebecca's chair at the end of this section, thinking about the fact that Rebecca used to sit here, right? This, so I think that there's no doubt in my mind that the that the antagonist is Rebecca, um, but in what way we don't yet know. That's my prediction. Yeah. And also, so, we're not clear on what's real and what's not. Mm-hmm. Then you have got to be at least a little bit suspicious of Maxim. Like you're rooting for him. Tell me if I'm right. You're you're rooting for him. But you're I'm also if, for the man that came in and swept her off her feet. But I don't know if that's really Max DeWinter or not, right? Like that could be a a uh, that guy don't be, exist, Heidi. That guy don't yeah, exist. Yeah, like a mask, right? Well, I mean, like other that, than you, Tim. Would you say, David? That could other be just you, a Tim. persona. Um, like he could be this narcissistic predator who wants to break her spirit or make her like make her into some kind of like um, what's that myth about that. Uh, about Pygmalion, right? He could be some like Pygmalion who's trying to like form her into the perfect wife or he's going to make her wear his ex-wife's clothes or something, right? Like there's, so there's just this haunting nature. It is a haunted novel. Now, whether or not Rebecca is, it's his memory of Rebecca that becomes the antagonist in the novel or whether or not it is like, she is some kind of malevolent force I don't, we don't, we don't know yet, Yeah. but I like this guy and I hope that he remains this guy, but he could also be a creep. You know how Van Hopper warns her, says he's just lonely. And you talked, you've talked about this, you know, tabula rasa thing, this blank slate. Um, 
it, it's interesting to does she want to be does he want to make her does he want to get a second chance because it didn't go well the first time and is he trying to recreate the same woman that he had or is he trying to build build for lack of a better word something someone completely different so does he want to recreate the thing that he lost or does he need something that is just a completely new variation of of Rebecca, yeah, there, you just said, "Oh, interesting" in the comment box, and there are there were a couple things here that were mm-hmm. we should read. Astrid said, "Mrs. Danvers seems almost more like an embodiment of of Manderley. Like if the walls could talk, it would be Danvers. The protagonist is an invader." And then Haley said, "The way Mrs. Huh, Danvers that's a great that's a great idea." Sorry, Dave, go a, ahead. This is just the kind of stuff people just yell at their cars, at their, and at their, <laughs> like we're you know, finally hearing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um. The way Mrs. Haley said, the way Mrs. Dan- Ms. Danvers is described as a black figure with hollow eyes in a skull white face, like a dead person, feels like it links her with the dead wife. Um, and then Kristen's comment is insightful too. Yeah, she's I lost. I lost the place. place. <laughs> Kristen says she's yeah, in Rebecca's place, but it's still Rebecca's, not hers. And I think that that is really. I mean, all of those comments are super interesting, but mm. that like she's literally there's so many objective correlatives and symbolic moments in the novel, right? Like the blood red rhododendrons, the closing of this first part when she's literally sitting in Rebecca's place, but feels like Rebecca's more real than her, right? So this is, you know, this is this is a novel, a memory novel that has this like gothic, all these gothic tropes to it. <laughs> Janet pointed out that when she trips and the book falls open to the inscription mm-hmm. and I about threw my book when that happened. Hey, Matthew Huff, you're the only guy here who dared to put his camera on. So what do you say? <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. I had a, I had a pastor when I was a kid, he would just come up to me and be like, so what do you say? And he'd be like, about what? And he'd be like, anything. It's your chance to say anything you want. <laughs> It's been enlightening to see how many people are interested in the 21-year-old girl version of what a good man should be. It's all dark, mysterious, and brooding. So that's that's good advice if you're a 21-year-old man. Yeah, become tall, become dark, and brood. Yeah, right. Some kind yeah, of we have some, you got to have some money, too. You got to have, gotta have some money. That, yeah, nurture a secret. Yeah, we got to have a reason to brood. Don't listen yeah. to Tim. You don't need money when you're 21. You just, well, you just need a secret. You didn't hurt. You, oh, just a secret. Okay. You need a secret that some good woman can heal for you. There you go. That's my advice. Um, so go ahead, Tim. Well, I was in just a passing comment. How, when was um, Death Comes from the Archbishop written? What was it 1920 20 range? 27, I think. Yeah, I think okay, so this book is a dozen years, years after yeah. Physiognomy. That's really good math. Thanks. Physiognomy has kind of showed up just a little bit in both of these stories. Like, um, definition, please. This is so the idea that one's physical aspect is indicative of one's character. Um, so if you remember the description of the, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the guy who's living with his captive wife out on the frontier. And he has a, like a little skull, like a little serpent-shaped skull or something like that. You, you guys remember this. We talked about it on the mm-hmm. show. Yeah, Buck Sales. Um, and Miss, Buck Sales, that's right. And uh, Mrs. Danvers is described in a similar sort of way. 
it really emphasizes the shape of her skull as kind of this portent of doom. It may not be anything at all, but I do know that physiognomy was kind of, it kind of, it, it, it kind of comes, it comes up every once in a while and then it goes back down. People are like, come on, really? The shape of your skull has to do with your character. And, I, and then it'll come me, back, you know, it. a generation later. And, and just to clarify, you mean in like science as opposed to right, in right, literature right, right, right. as a trope. Right, yeah. Says someone, this is on page 67, someone advanced from the sea of faces, someone tall and gaunt, dressed in deep black, whose prominent cheekbones and great hollow eyes gave her a skull's face, parchment white, set on a skeleton's frame. Creepy. Ghostly. Super creepy. So it's 10 o'clock Eastern time. And that means that we've been here going for, I don't know, we started a quarter till nine so an hour and 15 minutes and i want to make sure that we can keep addressing things that people have to say in the comments but before we do that heidi and tim what are your final thoughts on these seven chapters anything we didn't cover i mean there's obviously lots of things we didn't cover but anything that you want to make sure we touch on or that is you are gearing up for for the next uh the next section nope i'm good i just love reading a page turner. I think we choose a lot of, um, we have an eye for great books on the show, you know, but some of them, they require a little that was bit the of nice, That was the nicest way I've ever heard someone say, sometimes the books get a little bit draggy. I don't think they get draggy, but like, like is death comes for the archbishop a page turner? No, it's a beautiful, well-written book with compelling characters and, you know, I can heap on the praise, but it doesn't, it doesn't have, I can put it down and it's not Mm -hmm. a page turner. Yeah. This book for me is a page turner. I totally agree with that. It's almost a pot boiler, Heidi, almost Mm -hmm. a pot boiler. It's a genre novel and we read. Okay. So I do have a final thought. Um, we read a lot of man books on this show. We read a lot of like me kind of like, oh, a Western, cool, right? Like I am going to get into this thing, a spy novel, right? This is a girl book. Mm. And this kind of, it's a genre novel. It is a page turner. And I am excited about reading a girl book on the show. So there you go. What was, what was the last girl book that yeah. we Anna read on the show? Oh, and before games. and it was before awesome. that. I'm sure. I'm sure if we've read a few, yeah, remember them. What was the last man book we did? Sun also rises. Yeah, well, I love that book, but we've. I mean, in in the line of genre books that we've done, this is the first romance that mm. I can remember a genre romance, like a gothic romance novel. And I like these. I like this mm. genre. It does. It's a page turner. I like the psychological study. And I like the fact that the psychological study is oriented towards the love story. I like that. And yeah. kind of this this, th- this like weird kind of menage a trois with the dead wife. That's cool. So I, I'm into it. Do you call Jane Austen? Is that a girl? Yeah, book? I think that's probably it's probably a girl book, but I it's think literary. So. so it's it's very literary, and this is this is you know considered a classic. But to your point, I I would not describe, and some of you may disagree with me on this. I would not describe Jane Austen novels as page page turners. Yeah, I 
like they, they take some digging. And that's what I was expecting when I picked this up. Like I said, I this was written in like the 19th century. I thought it was going to be comparable to the Brontes whom I love, but I, but still takes a lot of work. Like this book doesn't take work to read. And I yeah. kind of find that refreshing. And I Me like too. the fact that it's like a romance. I think that's, I think it's great. I like, I like it almost takes book. work to put it down mm-hmm. for me. Speaking for me, David, I'm not speaking for you. You know, I had, I thought that the audiobook made it way more compelling than reading it myself. Huh. I read some of the chapters to myself. I read some of them like I was driving or whatever and listened to the audiobook. And the, which this, you know, not surprising. I mean, they, that person spent a lot of time with the book. <clears throat> and I thought that some of the prose came alive a little bit. Um, and Nicole said, I, which audiobook? Um, I've got it right here. Hold on. <laughs> Keep going, David. I'll find it. Well, just as a reminder for anyone that has to go, the, for next episode, we will talk about chapters 8 through 14. So we'll do another seven or so chapters. Um, and then on March 25th, that's when we're starting with Jane Eyre. And somebody asked in the comments why we're doing two Gothic novels in a row. I think that was the question. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, because that'd be interesting to do these novels kind of in in conversation with one another, I suppose. And then the other part of it is that Karen Swallow Pryor had very specific scheduling. There was like specific scheduling times. So that, that played into it. Um, and we wanted to do this book to start. Um, we can do a lot. We can do a Lord of the Rings live recording probably, but it would have to be in the afternoon. And I don't know if that would be difficult for people. Um, well, we'll work on that, Astrid. We'll work on that. Um, but I think we could probably do that. So anybody have any comments or questions or anything like that that you want to bring up? Because we'll let you guys conclude the, uh, conclude the conversation and, and we'll you know, let your thoughts be the final thoughts to take us out of here. I mean, Matthew Huff already had his chance at, at, a, at a thought. So he, he, he's excluded. I mean, if you really have something that's super <laughs> smart, we'll let you talk. But if it's not super smart, then you will have to wait two weeks. Like the next time we do one of these, you won't be able to participate. I feel like that'd be fair. Wow. I feel really bad for him right now. Yeah. Well, he's he's yeah. nodding. I mean, he seems to agree with me. <laughs> Anna, Anna Massey, by the way, is the reader in the yes, yeah, Audible. Yeah. So Astrid says, "I agree that the heavy-handedness in drama is actually refreshing." Astrid, would you like to say more about that? I just mean I agree with Heidi that it's a page turner. It's one you can't put down. And for one who's not terribly familiar with Gothic novels, it's it's fun to just get really enmeshed in the symbolism of it all, the the colors and the the skulls and the red and all of that. I just really enjoy mm. that. It's fun. Mm. It's just been a fun read. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I can I can I can definitely see that. I mean, the archetypes and like the tropes and stuff. If you when you love genres, like you love them because of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I like hard-boiled crime fiction. It's one of my favorite things. I listen to like tons of Michael Connelly novels on audiobook while I'm stocking shelves here at the bookstore. And you love them, like I love them for like the sort of sparse, the sort of sparse uh, prose. It's like underwritten, and it's consistent with the characters, right? You know, it's consistent with the like, sort of edgy detective or whatever who's solving a brutal crime and like he doesn't know what's going on and doesn't know how to express what he's actually thinking and all that sort of thing so those those archetypes are the i think are the things that make these kind of books great so then in keeping with that i've heidi and tim 
and then anybody else that wants to answer this as well in the, in the chat, do you see this as, you know, there's, there's uh, somebody said um, a literary, how highbrow of literature do you consider this? Cause you know, on the back of the cover, it says it was the winner of the Anthony award for the best novel of the century. So that would suggest that there is a, you know, it is at the top tier of, of all novels of literature. We've been talking about the genre elements. Where do those two things merge for you? Tim, what, what do you think? I, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, I, I was trying to explain to myself how I had never read this book. As good as it is, as, as highly well, praised as it is. Well, Heidi said it's because it's a girl book. It's just because it's a girl book. I don't remember Heidi saying that's the reason that I haven't read it or not. And I'm not that familiar with it. Heidi, did you make that case? No, I'm just saying oh. that. Hmm. So it made me wonder, like, why have I not come across this? Why have I not invested in this? And I sometimes wonder if I think sometimes there's a little bit of that pinky in the air attitude that that people have about literature, that it kind of has to be a little bit boring in order to really qualify as something mm. great. You know, like if it's too, like, you can't have a page turner that also wins the Nobel prize or the Pulitzer, you know, it's really rare that lonesome, those two things go dove. together. I, I think that lonesome dove is one of like the rare exceptions, but like, if you look at the past winners, you're like, boy, that's going to be, that's going to put me to sleep. And so is next year's. And so is next year's. And so is next year's. So all of that is kind of like a rambling question. Maybe I have not heard of this book because there's a little bit of a, prejudice against it because you're being no no, no no i think just the opposite there's a prejudice against oh, okay um those sorts of books page turner type of books among people who you know give the laurels of literature the highest laurels of literature go ahead heidi i think it's totally a literary novel and i am really excited what i keep consistently hearing and our Listeners who have read this many times um, have probably enjoyed our fumbling attempts to predict the future, um, which actually, to be honest, doesn't happen that much when we do a first um, a first episode. I mean, sometimes we try to predict the future, but there's something about this novel that raises the psychological question, what's going to happen in this marriage, right? Like, like, you can't help, but in talking about the novel up to this point, we have to make a guess about the future. Like that's, yeah. so there. I, I think it's a literary novel and what I keep hearing over and over and over again, it has become a classic because of its psychological study of the main characters. And mm. that I see already. And that is, as you guys know, that's my favorite thing about literature. I love a lot of things about literature, but the psychology of the characters is the most interesting thing to me. So I think I'm going to love this novel um, because of that. And I think that's that, that kind of... Whenever you take a genre novel and you make it very psychologically rich, like The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It has all the tropes of a spy novel. And it has then this like very rich complexity to the characters, which is not typical of a genre novel. And that's what makes it a, like a beautifully crafted work of literature. And I am expecting the same thing for Rebecca. I think it will be a great Gothic novel with all the tropes. And I am expecting it to, the thing that's going to raise it to the literary level is the, the quality of the writing and the psychological study and the complexity of the characters. Bring it. I can't stop thinking about the fact that you said that we mostly don't do girl books on this show. <laughs> I didn't 
doesn't mean that as an insult, but this is the first because I, I, I actually don't think a great work of literature ought to be geared toward one gender. I don't believe that. I think great literature needs to be compelling to multiple kinds of people at multiple levels. But I do think that certain genres tend to be picked up by, you know, by the gender. Like, I'm a girl. I like romance novels. I like well-written romance novels. Um, but I also like murder mysteries. And I like spy novels. You could convince me on the spy novel thing. I have not quite developed a love for the Western. I'm still willing to be convinced. I'm not closed-minded about it. But I just haven't ever figured out how to like them. I'm not that into them. Um, maybe Lonesome Devil pushed me over the edge. But this, this <laughs> is a horses. novel. This like the gothic romance is more likely to appeal to women. That's not true across the board. But I actually think that's a weakness of the genre novel in general, is that it's more compelling to one gender or another, like kind of the tropes are. And so whenever you get an, a genre novel that transcends that, I'm, I'm into it. I'm all about it. I feel like we could argue about this certain, well, the, <clears throat> we can talk about the, the, gen, the genre of gender thing. Sure. Because... It's been interesting here at the store who buys who yeah. buys what. Um, because I will tell you that almost every Western and almost every crime novel is purchased by women. Um, but I find that fascinating. For um, no, I don't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, I generally have conversations with them about, you know, I ask that question. But uh, don't women buy more books anyway? Uh, yeah, pro- yeah, probably it's to scale <laughs> um and marie says she's gonna have to get a on tiktok if tim is on there tim, dan, marie, on TikTok? dan marie don't worry i am not on tiktok i'm not i saw my first tiktok video last week that's how that's how backwater i am <laughs> hey david before we Something go can i do a little blurb about um the plays the thing yeah are we done we're just getting there yeah before we go you can definitely do that Somebody said it's True Grit, a girl book, because I would definitely say that's not a boy book, but I wouldn't say it's a girl book. So the question is, if you broke it down, would we all have different takes on the books that we've done on this show, that whether they're boy books or girl books? Like, is Hannah Coulter a girl book? Yes. Are the Marilyn Robinson books girl books? No. I'm just like answering questions without any compelling evidence to support my claims (laughs) amy we're talking about doing lonesome dove here on the patreon um in a couple of books uh after we finished lord of the rings and then i think what we'll probably do is um we've we've promised tim that we would do um anna karenina so i think tim we might have to might let tim have to be the the arbiter of whether it's lonesome dove or anna karenina next after lord of the rings well tim tim will be the deciding vote so you know man that's, him, that's uh, so hard that'll be a him, fun uh, vote to cast we'll let you we'll let uh <laughs> we'll let people you know bribe you i believe is the word i'm looking for great great i'll publish my not, address you're not above such things <laughs> <laughs> okay so interesting yes hannah coulter is a is a girl book says Kathy, but then Nicole says Wendell Berry's an everybody book always. Is Hamlet a boy book? And is Romeo and Juliet a girl book? That's a great segue to the plays the thing. It is. Go ahead and do it. You're really dying to give a blurb. You probably should go ahead and do that so that we can 
you know, we can make sure that that happens. The next play that we're going to do will be corresponding with the National Theater in London broadcasting Romeo and Juliet on PBS on April 23rd of, of course, this year. Heidi, Sarah Jane, and myself are going to do Romeo and Juliet in preparation for that PBS viewing. And we're kind of hoping that we can, it might be just kind of fun to have sort of something like a, a, a viewing party on April 23rd um, of Romeo and Juliet. So that is coming. And I am still in discussion with David Kern's father um, about doing Hamlet. It has been as torturous as I won't say anything else. Just getting him on the books has been like a nightmare. Um, oh, cause you want him to be on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he wants to be on there. COVID. I know I, he does. His, he wants his, to be on it, but like his eight week battle with COVID threw his life into disarray. So. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I have to address this in the chat box. There's a lot of Romeo and Juliet hate. I know. So I can't wait for you to. I, this is my favorite play, my favorite tragedy, excuse me. I am by far Romeo and Juliet is the Shakespeare play that I am most ready to defend because it gets so much hatred and I'm extremely opinionated on it. So like a lot of other Shakespeare plays, I'm like, you know, this or this, or this or this, it's a rabbit or a duck. It's both like, and I'm like, this is a rabbit. So <laughs> if you so want to hear Romeo me, and Juliet is a rabbit. Yeah. So if you are interested in hearing Heidi White pull out her sword and defend a piece of literature, I will do it for Harry Potter and Romeo and Juliet. So Tim, are you, Tim, where do you stand on the Romeo and Juliet? Like, in I mean, not that you're, not that you're going to like, dislike a Shakespeare play, but in terms of the canon, bottom third, middle third, top third of the 33 plays or whatever. I'd have, to th I, I, I'd have to think about it, but I think I'd put it in the top third. Oh, okay. So you guys aren't really going to be fighting on anything. No, I don't think so. It's a great play. It's a great Just, play. And I think it's like maybe, maybe a little bit like this book. It might be a victim of its own success. It's so yeah, good. That's true. That it becomes easily farcible. But like, yeah. I mean, but if you could kind of take it out of the, I sort of say take it out of space-time continuum, doesn't make any sense. If you could take its reputation <laughs> away and just read it as a piece of literature, it's like stunning. It's stunning. And by the way, if you need to get as a teaching device, if you need to get boys into Romeo and Juliet, show them the, like, the 90s movie with like gunfights at the gas station. Come on. That's, that's a like good it's, it's, that's my favorite version. It's Weird. great. It's great. Who's the, Leonardo DiCaprio and who's the director? I like that one. Boz Lerman. Claire Baz Dance, Lerman. Boz Lerman. Yeah. It's yeah. it's superb. But it's, I do. I will say I do understand the Romeo and Juliet hate because for reasons I'm sure we'll discuss on the show. I get it. I just think that there's a defense. So, what do you think of April's question? Could the one? problem be that we always teach it to children the same age as Romeo and Juliet because it was painful in ninth grade? painful yeah. she says <laughs> is what's painful yeah well and i think a lot of teachers don't understand what shakespeare was doing so anyway we'll we'll talk we'll talk about it when we get there 
But I mean, a lot of the accusations the ammunition, against Heidi. Romeo and Juliet are love. Are this? Here's my transition. You guys can applaud me. Okay, so a lot of the same accusations that are leveled against Romeo and Juliet are leveled against the gothic romance. It's melodramatic. It's overblown. It's purple prose, right? Um, and and that is often true for a badly written one. But what from what I've seen in Rebecca, we're not talking about a badly written one. We're talking about one which with a with a with an author who's fully in control and knows exactly what she's doing. Um, and I'm I'm excited to see what happens next. All right. Well, then for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh and for the 46 people that were here and the 22 that are still here for some strange reason, I am David Kern. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, happy reading. Yeah, just to be clear, I actually like this book. (laughs) Yeah, I know you do. It's just not your favorite type of book. Right, like, and it's not so. Oh, it's just it, it's too much. It's just so yeah. much writing. There's yeah. so much writing in it. David has <laughs> limited time in life. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. But I do like the audiobook, and the audiobook helps. At, when I say something's overwritten, I mean that as a descriptive term. I don't mean that as a derogatory term. And when something is overwritten, audiobooks help me a lot with that. Um, what is my history with the book? Uh, oh, I've never read it before. This is my first time reading it. So for all three of us, this is the first time. So we're kind of experiencing the uh, the whole the, yeah the time and actually it's a very different book than I thought it was from Reputation. I thought it was yes I believe this is the first that all three of us the first time all three of us have not read something yeah because cool. because usually what we do is everybody kind of gets to nominate a few books and then we take nominations from you all and then we compile a list that way. Um, so usually someone like when we did Death Comes for the Archbishop that was Heidi's recommendation when we do all the pretty horses that's for tim um and so forth and so usually there's at least one of us that's that's uh that's read it did anybody have any more thoughts on the book that they wanted to wait david, I, okay nicole david yeah, how did we pick the, the book he's a tyrant about it oh um, please a benevolent tyrant but a tyrant <laughs> well, nonetheless until until the, until actually including this list everything kind of like because we were under the auspices of a parent company, I did have to get things approved. I couldn't just choose whatever I wanted. And so what happened, we just took nominations. And, and I take issue with that <laughs> gross mischaracterization. <laughs> um, An oligarch? How would you describe it? a tyrant? In An one oligarch? word, you choose a noun to describe your role in choosing the books. The... That, <laughs> um just the sorter of long lists that's not one word but i just put hyphens in it that's what i think i do there's a hazard to say there's a there's a word for that like a curator you think of yourself (laughs) as a curator and david is an excellent curator it is a characteristic of david kern to curate things for our enjoyment but it is still i like to say tyrant that just sounds better yeah sure sometimes it's like we are siblings, the three of us. <laughs> and my goal is just to annoy you as much as possible. And your goal is to squash me. Our goal is Let's get to... into some family dynamics here. I know, right? Or or, or are you are you like the parents? Is that the is that the No. Last week the last week I was told that I was the dad quote, the dad of the show. <laughs> that was David said that. So 
that's what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heidi did. Heidi, Heidi, Death Comes for the Archbishop was Heidi's nomination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, David, here's what David does. It's really, he keeps like a, I don't know if it's a Google Doc, although it probably is because you do Google Docs or Notes or Evernotes or whatever of like books we like, right? You like, yeah, you keep I keep an ongoing list when you guys yeah. talk about stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Which is super cool. I actually like the fact that you pick them um, or make the final decision on them curate them i like that i like that. I, I, I will accept the notion that when push comes to shove i will say yes we're going to do that one over that one because there's only so many that we can do i might take issue with that being a tyrannical i know well maybe you i know, should maybe i, I should like, lean into it more would you prefer that just own it this is what i'm saying i, okay. I mean right. i'm i'm team maxim like I'm gonna be like, yes, tell me what to do. <laughs> yes, Matthew, we are all 35. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly 35. how old I am. We share a birthday, in fact. Mm-hmm. We are all the same on the enneagram. We discovered. We That's are. True. Yeah, that is true. We are all That's threes. True. Wing four. Are we all firstborn, Tim? Are you a firstborn? You are too, right, Heidi? Yeah, we all three are. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Which is why. Okay. Do, what are the, are you the, can leave whenever you want. By I the know, way, you this guys point, do we're not just, have to stay. We are just we're we're just chatting it up. All firstborn threes. That's right. Maybe we should change the name of the pod. Yeah. Maybe it should be. We have a plan for your life. That's what firstborns do, right? Don't they kind of like yeah, plan exactly. other people's lives for them? Yeah. But we could do something with like we could. But we need to create like a gothic metaphor. Can we use? We are the some tyrants. Dark, of, we are the dark tyrants of your breeds. life. <laughs> <laughs> yes Matthew. you have that's you what the patreon the patreon awesome. should be what's the word from the book that i was complaining about slaughterous slaughterous yeah we need to find more ways to use the word slaughterous close breeze 